And good morning again. I spent the first 10 years of my life in a small town in Texas named Lockhart, where my family lived. Uh, Lockhart, there were a couple of oil rigs on the edge of town. A few folks raised various livestock, but Lockhart's primary industry was farming cotton and maize, and that meant that Lockhart really didn't have a lot going on. Except every year on the, during the second full weekend of June, the town would hold its big event for the year, something called Chisholm Trail Roundup. And Chisholm Trail Roundup was uh, sort of went back in time and remembered the days before railroads when two cattle drive routes headed north kind of converged in Lockhart. And my favorite part of uh, Chisholm Trail Roundup, there were a lot of elements of that. The carnival would come to town. They'd have a rodeo on the other side of town. There was a chili cook-off, a beauty queen contest, a beard growing contest that I remember my dad entered one time. That's how bad things were. But my favorite part of the Chisholm Trail Roundup in that weekend and sort of the highlight of life in Lockhart as a kid was the big parade that went along with Chisholm Trail Roundup. So classically small town America was this parade that one year the Coca-Cola company used that parade as a backdrop for one of their television commercials. Another year my dad built a sort of four-wheeled vehicle that had to be pushed by an adult or two that um, my brother and sister and I and our neighbor kids climbed in and were actually became a part of the parade. That's about all it took to get into the parade. And those were some of my uh, most enjoyable memories from Lockhart and from my childhood and Chisholm Trail Roundup, that parade. At its uh, annual nine-year or nine-day celebration called Fiesta, the city of San Antonio, where I ended up growing up the rest of my time, has some of the biggest parades in the country each year, including a parade that literally floats down the San Antonio River. Some of you have been to the Macy's Day Parade in New York City. Some of you have probably been to Mardi Gras parades, the Rose Bowl Parade. Lots of us have been to the Chinese New Year Parade up in the city, the largest Chinese New Year Parade outside of China in the world. And many of us just love parades. We enjoy going to parades. Parades bring out uh, lots of people and they bring out sort of these emotions and community and joy. Uh, parades are about happiness. And once upon a time, Jesus himself was in a parade of sorts. In fact, Jesus mostly was the parade. He was the grand marshal. He was the primary focus. He was kind of the beginning and the end. And we read about this parade, if you will, in all four of the Gospels. We're going to read specifically about it in Matthew uh, this morning. But first, let's pray together. Pray with me. God, we ask that through your word, as we open your word together this morning, that you would shape us by it, that you would help us to set aside our distractions, our random thoughts, and that in our focus on your word and your words, that you would mold us, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would help us to enter into your kingdom, your reign, your life, and your reality in our midst here and today. I pray that as my words are true and faithful to your word, that they would be taken to heart by each of us. If my words stray or deviate in any way, shape, or form from your word, may they be immediately forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. If you have a Bible with you this morning at home, uh, want to grab a Bible real quick, that'd be great. I'm going to start reading from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21 
beginning at verse 1. Listen closely, follow along closely if you've got a Bible with you at home. This is the Word of God. As they, Jesus and his disciples, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament. Say to daughter Zion, in other words, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. And the gospel writers Mark and Luke include here some words that Matthew leaves out for some reason. Luke writes, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as Jesus had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And Jesus' disciples replied, the Lord needs it. And this was a way that those gospel writers, Mark and Luke, make it crystal clear to the readers that Jesus is calling the shots all along the way. That he knows what's happening, that he knows what's coming, that nothing surprises him. None of this is accidental. Now verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him, Jesus, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of God. Uh, The Lord saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Who is this? And there ends our reading, at least uh, for the moment. Matthew writes, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city stirred. And we have to take that somewhat metaphorically, I think. In verse 8, Matthew writes, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and now it's the whole city. But if it had really, truly, truly, really been a large crowd and literally the whole city, then presumably the religious establishment and the occupying Roman government would have shut Jesus down right then and there. It would have been unthinkable for the Jewish authorities to allow someone even for a day to assume, to assume the title son of David, Israel's greatest king, and to embrace the various forms of imagery that were associated both with past Jewish kings and with the long-awaited Messiah, these various forms of imagery that Jesus was incorporating, like the donkey in his entrance and the hosannas from the crowds. There's no way that the Jewish authorities would let this go on for very long. They would shut Jesus down. They would take him in for interrogation right away if it had been the whole city. Of course, a week or so later, the Romans, with the blessing of the Jewish establishment, they would nail Jesus to a cross, and above them they would post a sign in mockery that said, King of the Jews. But even the chief priests of the Jews rejected that moniker for Jesus, and they protested to Pilate, do not write King of the Jews, but that this man only claimed to be King of the Jews. But even if not literally the whole city, there was there that day at least a healthy crowd, and Matthew says that that crowd 
was stirred. Stirred, which is the weakest possible interpretation or translation of a Greek word we looked at last week, the Greek word seismos, from which we get the words seismology and seismograph, which of course are used to measure the shaking or the quaking of the earth. And you remember last week that we noted that Matthew used the word seismos at three points in his gospel. First, to describe the storm that arose one time when Jesus' disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus was asleep in the boat, and this huge storm comes up. The second time is right before, right at Jesus' crucifixion, and the third time in Matthew's gospel that we read the word seismos, that noun, is at Jesus' resurrection, and again, the world or the earth shakes And then here, Matthew uses the verb form of seismos to describe what had happened, what was happening when Jesus came to town, when love came to town, when truth came to town, when justice came to town, the city shook. And Matthew records the people of the city basically asking the same question that we heard Jesus asking his disciples or Jesus' disciples asking themselves last week back in chapter 8 after Jesus had calmed the storm. A question that Matthew wants his readers all to ask themselves. Who is this man? Who is this person? A question that sooner or later every one of us must not only ask but also answer. Who is this Jesus? Who is this person? And what is he all about? Someone asked me yesterday, when do you think Jesus' disciples came to understand and know who Jesus really was, that he was God, that Jesus was God? When do you think Jesus' disciples really came to know and understand that? And that's a good question. But more important than my response or my attempt, my guess at a response to my friend yesterday is each of our own answers to that question today. Who is this person? Who is Jesus? And that's the most important question anyone will ever answer. Who is this person? Who is Jesus? Clearly, Jesus was like no other. He was unique among all people, unique in history, and certainly that day, unique in Jerusalem. Ordinary pilgrims would enter Jerusalem on foot. Jesus was no ordinary pilgrim, and so he enters differently. But kings, typical kings, entered cities on stallions. Some of those present in Jerusalem that day must have been familiar with Alexander the Great's grand entrance into Jerusalem 300 years earlier, conquering, victorious, demonstrating his power. Alexander entered Jerusalem on a war horse, a symbol of battle and victory. But Jesus entered Jerusalem quite intentionally, gently, and riding on a donkey. An ordinary king, and we celebrate Jesus as king on Palm Sunday. An ordinary king would enter a city in Jesus' time to kill and to destroy But Jesus entered fully committed to live and to die by a mission to love his enemies and to turn the other cheek and to teach his students and followers and disciples and the world to do the same. 
Jesus' students, followers, disciples recognized in some way that Jesus, though he came into Jerusalem in some ways as a king, was no ordinary king. They no doubt were expecting something monumental from Jesus at the same time though. Most of them had been with Jesus for three years. They'd seen him exercise power in the sick and power in the lame and power over the wind and power over the waves. They'd seen him run circles around the brightest of Israel, the most educated, the most religious, the most holy. They'd seen his popularity soar among the masses in recent months and weeks. This certainly would be Jesus' breakout moment, they were thinking. Despite his entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey, that must have been some glitch in his plan, they may have thought. Jesus fulfilled prophecy after prophecy that day. And things for the Jews were reaching ahead with the Romans. This certainly would be their moment, Jesus' disciples must have been thinking, as they yearned for the restoration of Israel's independence and thus its glory. And maybe they yearned for something also for themselves. At the end of the previous chapter in Matthew's Gospel, and remember that context is always important in all of life, in all of the world, in all that we do, in all that we read, but certainly also in the Scriptures. At the end of the previous chapter, Jesus' inner circle, so right leading into this, James and John came to Jesus with their mother. They brought their mother. And Jesus asks her, what is it that you want? To which she replied, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Because there was this anticipation that Jesus was about to bring about his kingdom and to be enthroned himself as the king of Israel. And Jesus replied to her and to them, you do not know what you are asking. You have no idea what you're asking. You do not get it. They still don't get it, Jesus said to James and John's mother, and neither do you. No one did. Not yet. And Matthew tells us that when the other 10 disciples in Jesus' close-knit group of 12 heard about James and John's approaching Jesus with their mother, the other 10 were indignant. Remember that word, indignant. And they were probably mostly indignant, not because James and John with their mother had gone to Jesus asking for positions of prominence in his coming kingdom, but rather because James and John had beaten them to the punch had gotten to Jesus, had the nerve to get to Jesus with that question before they did. And so really none of Jesus' disciples got it at this point. They didn't understand Jesus' mission. They didn't get his motives. They didn't understand his kingdom, at least not yet. They had participated in Jesus' so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem as editors of our Bibles have often labeled those first 10 verses of chapter 21 in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' triumphal entry. But if Jesus' entry into Jerusalem could in any way be called triumphant, it certainly was not triumphant in any way that Jesus' disciples expected. And then there's this matter again of context. Context is critical in understanding so much of the scriptures. So listen again, I'm gonna back up 
and pick up Matthew's account at verse 6 now. Listen again. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered their own question. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The crowd's best guess was that Jesus was a prophet from an obscure little town in Galilee called Nazareth, which was partly accurate. He was prophet. And then without skipping a beat, Matthew continues, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, Jesus said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a den of robbers, another reference from the Old Testament. And we can read that calmly. I can read those verses calmly. But it's hard to envision Jesus calmly, gently, humbly, as he rode in on that donkey, driving out all who were buying and selling there, even overturning tables, scattering people's money, their coins, their beloved possessions, and their animals to be sold for profits. Listen again. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling gloves. Jesus doesn't seem to soak in his role as grand marshal and triumphant Messiah King for very long, or for as long as you and I might expect, or as that break that editors put in our Bible might lead us to believe happened. Jesus doesn't soak in his role as grand marshal and the esteemed and worshipped Hosanna prophet, king, messiah for very long. Before Jesus gets on with his mission, driving out those who had set up businesses where there should have been prayer and worship, calling out the money-making schemes of those who had infringed on sacred space, putting a halt to the sacrilege and the opportunistic religion, Almost before the marching band had even finished playing and the people had finished with their singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Jesus is on to other things. We have chopped off the difficult or the challenging or the uncomfortable part of Palm Sunday and called it all good and happy. The church, at least during my lifetime and in my experience, has begun and ended Palm Sunday with happy praise, ignoring the fact that Jesus insists on doing some major surgery during the middle of it, in the midst of it. Are you with me on this? Are you with me? Raise your hand. Of course, Matthew continues. 
Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to Jesus at the temple and Jesus healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things, the wonderful things Jesus did, and the children still shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. There's that word again. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked Jesus. Yes, Jesus replied, have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And then he left them. And like that, went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. And only then did Jesus call it a day. Only after healing the blind and the lame, the disabled and the broken, the needy and the poor and the little children, to all of whom you remember his kingdom belongs, for all of whom his kingdom is. And the ones who are indignant and frankly unaware, obtuse, clueless, missing the boat in this section of Matthew's gospel, are first Jesus' disciples before Jesus' grand entrance. And the religious leaders after Jesus' grand entrance, while the ostracized and the disenfranchised and the poor in spirit and the children are immersed in God's grace and freely lapping it up. We don't have time this morning to go on to the rest of chapter 21, but in parable after parable and scene after scene, Jesus speaks hard words that cut to the heart, that call people out for their opportunistic religion, for their self-centered focus, for their objection to the coming of the true kingdom and reign of God, where the outcasts are brought in, where the poor are provided for, where the lame, hurting, sick, ill, infected are healed. The ones who are indignant at Jesus' coming kingdom, as it turned out, were Jesus' disciples themselves who hadn't yet got it. And the religious leaders who were good at practicing religion, but up to that point knew nothing of the king's kingdom. We have domesticated Palm Sunday. And so much of the rest of the Christian faith, and so in some ways our Christ as well. By dwelling in and on and about the parades, which we love, I love, we all love, my favorite moment in the year on Sunday mornings every year is what we missed out on in live reality this morning when the children come into the sanctuary waving palm branches every Palm Sunday up until now. It's my favorite moment of the year on a Sunday morning because it's a reminder how simple what Jesus calls us to is to be all about him, to be praising him, to giving him honor, to giving him what he rightly deserves. But we have domesticated Palm Sunday and so much of the rest of the Christian faith and in some ways also our Christ by dwelling only in the parades and tuning out the other parts of Jesus' love, Jesus' truth, 
Jesus' righteousness. He calls us to a righteousness, not just in our own lives, but in the way we live in the world. And what the Bible calls justice. What is right and what is good. Because we've learned to be content with parades. Or maybe we think that's all there is. The Pulitzer Prize winning author Annie Dillard puts it this way and kind of hits the nail on the head. She writes, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Are you with me? By all means, let's roll out the red carpet for Jesus. Have the biggest ticker tape parade that's ever been thrown. Because he is worthy Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. But may God forgive us when we make the Christian faith about us. When we make it something that it's not supposed to be and when our focus is all about what's in it for me. What privilege, privilege, privileges might I obtain and our indignity toward others who attempt to somehow get it from us. May God have mercy on us when we seek for ourselves the glory that belongs to God alone. Or when we withhold from him the praise that is rightly his. May God have mercy on us when we fail to see that his kingdom is not about religion, but about loving the sick and the hurting and the wounded and the poor and the children and the weak and the childlike among us. May we not be people who pick and choose the parts of Scripture only that please us. And in so do we not only offend the one whose word it is, but also in the process deprive ourselves of his boundless truth, his boundless love, his boundless grace, his boundless justice. This is the king who entered Jerusalem. This is the king we celebrate on Palm Sunday. This is the king who has the power to change our hearts on the inside and our world on the outside. This is the king who desires to heal in the midst of coronavirus. This is the king who can and does and will bring bad out of good. This is the king who awakens us in tragedy, in crisis, in moments like these. May we be aware, may we be prepared. That king has come and that king is coming. Let's pray. God, open us up, silence us, quiet us, help us to be attentive to you, still our hearts, so that on this Palm Sunday we might be open in ways that we have not before. To your coming 2,000 years ago, and to your coming again here now among us 
through your spirit and your power, through your word in our world, bringing about your kingdom. Do it, do it, do it. May this be so. Amen.